Welcome to Room for Growth, a Willow Tree podcast about growth marketing hosted by Billy Lowen and me, Billy Fisher. Whether you're an industry expert or just getting started, there's plenty of room to grow. Share this episode with your favorite coworker, follow us wherever you enjoy podcasts, and reach out if you'd like to join the show. You ready, Billy? I'm ready, Billy. Let's go. Let's f***ing grow. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Room for Growth. I am Billy Lowen here at Willow Tree. I'm running a solo episode today. The other Billy is on vacation. He's got his feet in the sand somewhere with his daughters and his wife. You will not just be hearing from me today, though. We have an awesome guest. Alvin Chow is the VP of Global Brand Marketing at Haynes Brands. He joins us to talk all things the power of brand, everything from a little teaser into how he helped create the brand behind the McFlurry and some other products that you know and love, as well as how you can use brand as a differentiator to drive sales, to re-engage with different audiences, and to stay fresh. Now, let's get to the segment. But before we do... I have a bowl of questions that I have not read yet. I am terrified. I do not like these kinds of surprises. So for those who are listening in and not watching, I have a small bowl in front of me. It has a hello, my name is Billy sticker on it. It's got like 10 or 15 folded up pieces of paper in it that I have not read. So I'm going to be drawing questions out of this bowl, opening them and then responding to them in real time, which is very stressful to me. I would like to have prepped these questions and my response to them, but this is the name of the game, people. All right. First question. What has been your most considerable work-related success this year? All right. So not my work-related success, but a team of mine. I've been lucky enough to work with them, help them here and there where I can. But a team of six, we've been working with the WWE closely. For those of you who don't know, the WWE is just a really impressive content brand. They churn out a velocity of content that is just unmatched in terms of like live events and what they're streaming, what they put on social media, how their superstars interact with fans. Um, They recently were... Their official YouTube page crossed 70 billion views, and they are the seventh channel ever to reach that milestone. So just like such an impressive brand, they're going through pretty massive digital transformation initiatives at the moment. And I can't share too much about what we've been doing with them, but we've got to play a small hand in it. It's really complicated work. It is hard to get people, process technologies to all align. Um, And I'm just really impressed with how our teams have spent half of this project sort of up to their knees in tech platforms and in CRM, thinking about messaging strategy, and the other half really working with different teams to think about a different way of connecting with fans and connecting superstars with fans in a way that I'm super excited about. I can't wait for it to come to fruition. All right. Second question. When has your gut steered you wrong and what did you learn from it? When has my gut not steered me wrong? Here is the thing about marketing. If you are not measuring what you're doing, you're just wrong. And even if you're a little bit wrong and you're, you're sometimes your gut is right, I think in marketing, like you have this hypothesis, you have this sense. That's what makes good marketers about how you should be connecting with your customers or what would drive the needle with them. That's great. Trust your gut. You need that to create hypotheses about what types of offers or what types of value might be created. But if you're not actually looking at the math, you are going to put so much effort behind initiatives that just don't mean anything. I can think of countless times where I've thought, oh, our fan base is this or our customer base wants this. And it's just when you look at the data, there's just nothing there to support it. There is no better trump card response than 
I just can't see that in the data. It's true. Um, one place where I am typically wrong that's really important is on the notion of offering somebody something new versus something that they've already engaged with in the past. I love new and different. I love coming up with new ideas. I love new coupons. I love new sales. I love new creative. And so I'm always a little bit too much in favor of trying something new when in reality, whatever somebody bought in the past is what they're likely to buy in the future. Whatever they watched in the past is likely to be what they're going to watch in the future and actually pairing people with um, something that's already like-minded to their interest tends to be better than new. Test it in your data. All right. Question three. What are your favorite techniques to use to get a client or hire up on your side to make them a fan? What a good question. So if there is an idea that I want a client in particular to buy into, and I'm trying to get them to see things sort of from my perspective or see why what I'm doing might be impactful, and there's a few things to keep in mind. One, how big of a shock is this thing going to be to their system? Is it a small ask? Is it a big ask? Is it already a part of their strategic plan and it ties up to something that they care a lot about and you're delivering a new insight or not? Two, if you are going to ask for something, what are you going to ask for? Make sure you have specific and actionable ideas that you can frame your problem clearly and that generally you have some data to back up either what the problem is or what the solution is going to cost. I think so often the absence of information makes it really easy to just take an idea and turn it down or say, hey, like, good question, but you know, unless I know what I'm signing up for, I don't even know how to answer that. So I think that's the biggest piece of advice. Understand where does this problem fit in that person's priority set? Is it already linked to something they care about or is it not? How can you quantify the problem or prove that the problem actually exists and isn't just a gut feeling or something that you've heard anecdotally for a couple of people? How can you layer some evidence? And then when you're approaching with the solution, there's a couple of ways to do that. Come with a few actionable ideas and show openness to hear other ideas from the leader who you're trying to sway as soon as you know that you're kind of on the same page that you have a problem worth solving. Or consider what a total cost might be and ask what information would be helpful for you to make this decision. So, you know, sort of constantly stay open-minded to shifting based on what that person needs to make a decision. Listener question number four. What is one thing you see a lot of growth leaders doing in the industry that you would change if you could wave a magic wand? Um, I think for so many growth leaders, growth tends to mean one thing and it remains single discipline. So it's either growth via paid media for acquisition or it's growth in a product because you're hyper-focused on what feature sets like drive engagement, or it's growth of brand engagement and you're measuring it by like impressions and, and total number of like hypothetical viewers, or it's growth of channel performance and you're really measuring it based on open rates and kind of click-through rates of own channel messaging. I think true growth and true growth leaders should be able to bring together all of those experiences in a way that aligns to a really simple dashboard of what matters most. Um, one of the questions that has been that has stuck with me since we talked to Jason Seeley and April from CKE who were talking to us about loyalty, we kind of asked them when you were building your loyalty, what were you ultimately trying to drive? There's so many ways that you can use a loyalty program um, to engage your customers and get them to change 
change their behavior towards your brand. You could increase frequency. You could increase basket size. You could increase which type of menu they're coming and purchasing off of. You know, they could be getting more into breakfast or lunch or dinner menu. How will you know? I think generally I don't see enough growth leaders saying, here are the three things we care about. Here's how they're going to be measured. And here's how every department and every silo and every channel is going to work together to create the best possible experience towards this outcome. All right. Next question. Drawing it out, unfolding it. What would it be if you could only eat one food for the rest of your life? This is like such a trick question because there's two ways to answer this. It's either like a last supper meal, which is what I'd order like in a you know what, I'm going to leave the violence of like a prison last meal out of this, but, but like one meal where it's a plate and it comes to you and you have to like get the same thing every day. Or what I'm going to do is totally cheat and pick like a category of foods that I assume I get some diversity in, in which case I would either eat sushi or burritos for the rest of my life. Cause man, that is a food group with some range. All right. Next. Was there a moment that led you to decide that life cycle marketing should be the focus of your career? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, yes and no. So I think life cycle marketing for me does a couple of things. I really believe in the value of retention. Um, I started my early career in journalism and then in nonprofit spaces. So sort of like low budget spaces where the value that you were creating for your end consumer was really in the content and the story that you were telling them, the impact you were having on their lives. So it was a really intangible thing. In those spaces, you can't be as overly indexed in acquisition spending, or you can, but if you're going to spend 50 to 100 to 200 dollars to get a subscriber or to get a fan, which is often what these brands pay. It's an outrageous amount of money. You have to keep that person around for a very long time with your brand, something to the nature of 12 to 18 months sometimes to see ROI on that acquisition investment. And that's where I became really obsessed with lifecycle marketing. You can see how powerful just a story and some personalized content and something that feels very human can cost quite a small amount and create a really disproportionate impact on how long somebody is willing to stay with you as part of a brand. I'm also just sort of obsessed with how you change people's behaviors. You get them to start to exhibit loyalty over time and choose your brand subconsciously or believe in your brand so heavily that they advocate for you. I think that that's a really interesting marketing challenge. And I also just like love free channels. Like I don't think I'm a really like thrifty person, but the idea that you could pretty much take any kind of media and you can use different own channels to do different things with creative content and you can create a whole identity and you can disperse any type of content you want across those channels. Like it just seems like the most bang for your buck. Plus like, you know what doesn't change every year? Regulations around email. There's always a few little tweaks and changes here you got to keep up with, but like it's not the Facebook and the Google of the world. So Anyway, I I just like the straightforward nature of relationship building through brand. What brand am I dying to work with? Oh gosh, what brands am I not dying to work with? So many. Um, I really like Lulu's, which is an e-commerce site that just sends basics, but I really like their customer experience. I like how they differentiate. I think they're doing interesting things in the female clothing brand space. Also dresses, top notch. I talk about Sephora all the time. I don't even know that I have to give them more um, space on this podcast to talk about how awesome I think Sephora is. Um, Domino 
knows, please let us work with you. I love your messaging strategy. I love how it aligns uh, with your value proposition as a brand for the most part. But I think we could make you as snazzy as your commercials. So I would love to help in that front. And all media brands ever. I love character-led personalization. I think it's awesome. I think it's so intriguing. There's so many opportunities. So constantly want to be working with media. All right. Last, but certainly not least, what do you wish more people asked you about dinosaurs, gemstones, honestly, magical uh, witches and warlocks and creatures of the world, um, how to build a tree house, how to build a blanket fort, how to build an American Ninja Warrior course at your local park. That is a good start. Hip hop, generally. Thank you for your questions. Please send your questions to roomforgrowth at willowtreeapps.com. And we're excited to answer them. And now on to our guest. Without further ado, I am super excited to welcome our guest today. Today, we are having a conversation with Alvin Chow, who's the Vice President of Global Brand Marketing at Haynes Brands. And we want to frame today's conversation around the power of a brand to drive growth and become a differentiator, especially when we're talking about how you reach top-line KPIs, things like driving revenue and fan or customer engagement simply through how you position the brand itself. So I'm going to let Alvin introduce himself and explain why he's the perfect guest to be having this conversation. So hi, Alvin. Welcome to Room for Growth. If you could start, introduce yourself to us. Tell us a little bit about your career path and how you got here today. Sure. Thanks, Billy. It's such a great honor to be on the show with you. So I've had a really varied background. I mean, my undergrad was in engineering, computer science. Um, I did technical work for a while. Then I went to business school, kind of getting into management consulting. So my first kind of marketing-oriented job was I worked in product development at McDonald's, helped develop, um, the, I helped develop the McFlurry, McGriddle, as well as some new fries. It was really fun to do that. So after McDonald's, uh, I went to Coke, where I got pretty much um, traditional CPG brand management experience. I managed um, the Coke marketing programs and food service first, and then I did brand management for the U.S. Hispanic market for Coke Classic. I then got recruited to go to Nike, which is interesting. I went to Nike to work. My first five years at Nike was actually in strategic planning and category management. Great experience on learning cross-functionally how to run a business, how different functions work. So uh, I always feel like the more you know outside of marketing, the more stronger you can actually execute marketing plans and strategies. So my last half of work at Nike, I was there 10 years I ran marketing at Hurley, which was owned by Nike at that time, the surf brand. Then I came back to the mothership in Portland for Nike. I led the retail marketing team in North America for football, baseball, and athletic training. So our main responsibilities were, were retail marketing in the shopping shops. If you go to Dick's Sporting Goods, you'll see the huge Nike shopping shop in the front. And we also were responsible for all the licensed shops in um, NFL stadiums, MLB stadiums, and colleges. So then I actually from Nike, I moved to New Balance and wanted to expand my responsibilities. Uh, Nike, since we were in a region, we took all the creative assets that were developed by the global teams. So moving to New Balance, I was one of the four global marketing directors 
which we actually developed all the assets and all the campaigns that then went globally for all the, all the campaigns, all the regions, sorry. So it was great to be able to work on the assets as well as execute them. From New Balance, I went to Samsung. I was there for five years. I led the flagship mobile phone marketing programs there for the launch programs. It was great. I mean, one of the most fun things we did was we did a Times Square takeover on the launch day where we took over about 15 screens all around Times Square. And we had a whale because that was kind of the theme of the ad going all the way across and around Times Square um, on all the digital billboards. So that was really fun. Samsung brought five years. I then came to Haynes about a year ago to lead uh, marketing for Haynes, um, the Haynes brand. Haynes brand Inc. actually has Champion Haynes, Bali, Main Form, and Playtex. So I lead the global brand marketing for the Haynes brand itself. Amazing. That is quite the career. And I have a number of questions that I'd love to dig into. But before we get too far into what you've learned in your career about the power of brand, I have to know a little bit about your office background right now. Where are you today? I feel like I'm looking at the page of an I Spy book where it's like, guess how many shoes and books? What's happening? Take us on a little tour. Oh, sure. So when I worked at Nike, I had probably over 300 pairs of shoes. There was, I had like five panels of it. And when I left Nike on New Balance, I obviously sold most of them. I sold about 270 pairs of my grad set, but I kept my favorite 50 pairs back by me. Then over to the to the other side, I've got some fun little things for different events. Like I have boxing gloves from a Manny Pacquiao event we did. I've got tennis shoes signed by Roger Federer and um, Milos Raonic when I did tennis marketing. So yeah, so I have kind of my favorite shoes up there. And then also I've got, you know, textbooks and things from, from my past. It's pretty amazing. That's a really fun office background. Is that, how often is that the main source of conversation when you're meeting someone? I debate on whether I should keep it on or blur because it's always a good conversation starter. Um, so yeah, almost every time we meet someone new, we have a conversation starter. And sometimes for regular meetings I have, like every week or every month, we'll start out with a fun thing and I'll share a little story about a pair of shoes that I have. So it's, uh, that's always kind of a fun icebreaker, little thing to get um, small talk started. And what's your favorite pair of Nikes? So, so I have two favorite pairs. I'd say I have Jordan Jordan 1's release, which are really cool. But my favorite set are, these were Air Moabs that were released back in the 80s. But these are re-releases. And these are Air Force 1's that were made in the spirit of the um, Moabs. So this is my favorite pair of pairs. Very cool. It is amazing to me how prolific the Nike brand remains. There have been so many competitors in the athleisure space and the athletic space, and yet that swoop will last forever. Yeah, Nike's done an amazing job of, I mean, they're probably one of the premier brand storytelling, product storytelling companies. I mean, a lot of these shoes are fairly special, so there's always stories behind it. Obviously, they have the, the commercial part, which is they sell millions and millions of pairs of shoes. A lot of the athletic shoes don't have as much story, but I worked in Nike SV, the skateboarding area, and almost all their shoes have stories behind them. So it is a great way to get cultural relevance. I mean, they'll do, they had a shoe where we called the Freddy Krueger shoe because it had like blood splatters. Of course, they can, they couldn't call that officially. It's all this kind of background info that shoe collectors then, you know, seek to find out the development of the design inspiration for the shoes. I always like to ask this question and just start very broad here. Alvin, what are some of the biggest challenges in marketing in particular that you are working on or that you hear your peers working on? Um, and how are you overcoming some of those challenges? So I'd say some of the biggest challenges uh, we're finding in marketing is the balance between digital and traditional media. 
how much broad awareness top of the funnel do you want to generate with traditional media? And then how much more kind of consideration conversion on the lower level? Related to that, actually measurement, right? So attribution is a, a nightmare trying to trying to, to track. What's the return on ad spend for your media? Me- so measuring performance KPIs is really difficult. At the awareness level for TV, right, we have frequency, reach, impressions, but you have no, at least right now, you don't have a really good attribution model there. You can't really track any click-throughs, right? There's nothing to click on. Granted, with now with streaming TV and OTT, you can click through, you, sometimes you can click through to product page and track revenue. The same respect at consideration and conversion levels, there's so many different methodologies on tracking. So what your attribution window is a one-day view, one-day click, is it 10 days? It's funny. We have ROASs of you know hundreds of dollars, but their attribution window is 30 days. So how can you tell when someone sees a creative and they click 30 days later to buy something that was based on on your creative? So so I'd say one of the biggest challenges is media mix and and media dollar spin affect us how to measure it. That's a great point. I think we work with a lot of clients at Willow Tree who are heavily over-indexed in acquisition spending and have almost entirely ignored sort of like lifecycle marketing and product-led growth and just understanding how to balance acquisition with retention. But you've worked primarily in a CPG space where that measurement is going to be difficult no matter what, where there inherently has to be more emphasis on acquisition and brand awareness. What are some of the biggest gaps for you where if you could have X or Y data about your customers, you would want the most? My CMO at Samsung was really funny. He said, most companies and brands want to be like the tender of brands. They want to sell you something, say, see ya. Versus, he said, we want to be more like the eHarmony of brands where we'll sell you something. We want to keep in touch with you, help you use your product. And because in that, as you, if you look at the lifestyle loop, it loops around for the next time you buy the product. Obviously, mobile phones, that cycles two or three years versus with, you know, things like underwear and shoes, it could be a couple of months. So it's not as much life cycle loop, but it's so important to understand what consumer buys and consumer behavior. It's getting harder and harder with, you know, cookie deprecation to track information about your consumers. So much of we're relying on first party. So we got to figure out ways. How do you get consumers to want to give you their data? You obviously, you have to give them something in return. So I think the importance of either loyalty program or some kind of clubs where you sign up, you give your information, you then, in return, you get early releases or discounts or um, free shipping and things like that. I mean, Amazon was probably the pioneer in Amazon Prime getting everybody's information because you get all this free shipping and it's great. As a technology company, I'm always remiss if I don't ask, but are there any technologies that you're seeing in market that are actually helping solve this problem? Because that is a question we get a lot, which is how do we bridge first to third party data? Are there any pieces of technology doing that well? And then I heard you a little bit on the tactical side, like loyalty programs are one way to really start to create a value proposition where your customers will give you data in exchange for something else. But talk to me a little bit, like what tech are you seeing work to bridge some of these gaps and what tactics are you focused on? The two things that, that we're looking at to implement at Haynes, that's going to be real helpful, are a CDP, a consumer data platform. I think Adobe's done a great job of, with Adobe Experience Manager, with all the different components they have on managing website, managing CRM. So that's integration is, is so important. And the, the other part of the equation, I think, is a, is a, we call it a PIM, product information management, because that actually helps us syndicate our assets and copy to Haynes.com as well as all the retailer.coms. Someone talks about, oh, it's funny, one of our Amazon, our Amazon sales team said, Amazon's like a bazaar 
with all these stands, unless you're going every day to make sure everything looks good, if you're not careful, everything becomes a mess and you equate the each stand to each page. So we've got thousands of Haynes pages on Amazon. And unless you're really diligent about going to them, keeping up the date, they're going to look like a mess. So having a PIM allows us to have all our product information in one place where we can syndicate, make sure the consumer experience is the same or very similar across all dot-com sites. Having CDP capturing first data and mixing in third data, we can then consolidate consumer behavior. So we know if somebody was on Hanes.com shopping for an X10 boxer brief uh, and they shop for a bra, well, it sounds like they're probably, you know, a couple. So we could send them recommendations on things to buy for Valentine's Day or Mother's Day or things like that. The trick with the CDP, as we know, is first-party data and first-party information is hard to get, but how do you get information on other sites? I think 90% of Hanes products are sold to retailers and we, you know, we can't get the information from Target.com, Walmart.com, and Amazon. So how do we try to do that? As you mentioned, Lord's Report might be one of them. Hey, if you can scan in a, a QR code from the purchase from Walmart, and then we know you purchased from Walmart, that that would help kind of bridge that gap. But the, the gap between wholesale and we call it DTC is really difficult to bridge in terms of capturing consumer purchase behavior. You are just, you're speaking my love language. I feel like right now we are talking about customer data platforms with our clients every day, as well as how to have some sort of like headless content management and using different types of connected content to make sure you can make those updates everywhere. So I'm just sitting here with a little like heart sing happening at the moment. We just did our long range planning. And one of the things we did long long range planning is how do we evolve from a transactional relationship with our consumers to an emotional relationship? And one of the main part of that is consumer experience, right? How do we personalize consumer experience? And we'd love it if we get to the point where when you come to Haynes.com, we know who you are. We know what you're looking at. We build a landing page for you in custom. We suggest what you have. Even down to when you're looking at social media, paid social media or banner ads. I, mean, I think Netflix pioneered dynamic creator optimization where you know the ad is built in real time depending on who you are. If you're a Netflix current subscriber, not subscriber, if you like rom-coms, if you like action, if you're been watching series or you like to watch movies instead, that's kind of... One of our visions is to be able to take dynamic creator optimization to the next level, not just in paid digital media, but also in website experience. That's such a great concept. We hear brands talking about this right now, like how do they personalize their content and the digital experience that their customers have at every touch point. And for so many brands, whether they're a big brand, a small brand, this is hard stuff. It's easy in theory. It's easy if you're doing it for one person and you're doing a manual build, but it's really hard at scale. What's one tip that you might have for another marketing leader about where to start? What's the best place to start if you want to really up your maturity in the personalization space across web, across channel, across digital? If you want to up your game on on being more personalized. We talk about like a one-to-many to one-to-one relationship. My advice and what we're trying to take here is to start small, right? You can't snap your fingers and change the world. So start small with maybe a brand or even like um, a part of your product line and pilot a loyalty program or sign of a club program and see if you can get that information and get that consumer behavior and start personalizing it for a small group of people. So you got to start small and get learnings. For, uh, at the start thing. All right, so big, broad question here, but what's a brand, Alvin? How would you define what a brand is? 
defining a brand is difficult. A brand, a brand means different things to different people. Um, a brand can be a symbol, a badge of honor that you wear. A brand can be a mark of approval. It can be, hey, I, I trust this product, so I want to buy it from the brand. So I'd say a brand is kind of like, um, I think, a personality of a company, consumer facing. It would be, when we talk about if, if brands are people, what would they be like? So I think the brand serves many purposes. Basically, what, what the company stands for, what their products stand for. I've always heard a brand described as what people say about you when you're not in the room. Like that is your brand. I think that's an interesting take because there's that component what you're talking about, which is sort of like, what's the promise that a brand makes to their customers? And then the other side of that is like, what do customers actually say you are when you're not listening? Yeah, no, I, I think actually I've heard that. That is, that is a great way to think of brand because you can think of your personal brand is what do people say about you when you're not in the room or they talk about each other other people and for a company or product that's so important because you know, we will we know word of mouth is so important on brand affinity than spreading the word yeah and that's why social media is so important influencers are so important with uh, marketing your brand what are some of your favorite brands what do you what do you think makes them exceptional obviously nike <laughs> nike's one of my favorite brands i think what makes them exceptional is one is they have a super clear brand position their brand mission is to bring innovation and performance to every athlete in the world. They have a little asterisk like the athlete, which is everyone has a body as an athlete. So that's so clear. And it's an easy proposition that you see comes alive across everything. So they have a real clear brand proposition. They're really super strict about consistent brand experience. If you look, say for holiday 22 season, if you look at the running page, a customer or a retailer in Beijing, you go to a running store in London, you go to Dick's Sporting Goods or a finish line here, you'll see the same created the same brand voice for running that season. So that's really one of the amazing things is consistency. That's what kind of drives brand strength. And they're, they're the masters of creating emotional connection with the consumers. If you think about when you're in a commodity market, and I know a lot of the product designers at Nike may not agree totally, but to be fair, if, if you compare apples to apples, if you compare a $125 neutral gate running shoe from Nike versus Adidas versus Stockton versus New Balance, they all give you the fairly, the fairly the same performance. Fit might be a little different. So when products have fairly, really commoditized features in consumers' minds, they fall back to brand affinity. Which brand do I like wearing? Which brand do I like? Which brand do I think my friends would you know, respect me more for wearing? So that's why it's so important to build that, that brand emotion out of your brand. Another great brand is Apple, right? What Apple stands for is just, is I, I love the Apple carrying millimeters called Think Different. You know, they have such a simplistic product line. They're not about innovation in the sense of, they're not always the first to come to market, but they take an innovation and they perfect it. And again, it's all about brand consistency, experience. If you, if you use an iPhone, use an iPad, use a MacBook, use a, a Mac, um, sorry, an iMac, they, you all have the same, very similar experiences on you know, iOS as well as the Mac OS. So I think, again, they do something, they have a very simple brand position, very consistent with how their brand is used. Yeah, I think that's a great one. I am a little bit obsessed lately with this idea of what makes a cult brand, like what makes, what experiences, what factors differentiate a brand from being a cult brand. And when I think of cult brands, I think of like Southwest Airlines where people are just have such an affinity to fly Southwest or Patagonia where people create their entire personal identity based off the clothing that they wear. 
Um, I think like White Castle is a client of ours who we love and they are definitely a cult brand. They do some fun, quirky, different things in the fast food space. Harley is another one. People who ride Harley love Harley. It just becomes so much a part of who they are. What do you think is different about a brand and a cult brand? And is being a cult brand worth aspiring to? I think the differences between a brand and a cult brand is is a cult brand has something almost like quirky about it that hits or connects with a certain group of consumers at a level way deeper than a normal brand. And cult brands are interesting in the sense of it's almost like what goes viral on social media. You almost can't predict it. It's something that just happens to hit a nerve uh, with a consumer group that makes them act almost irrationally emotional connected to that brand. And it's great. I mean, if you can create a cult brand, it's it's like creating something that goes viral, but I think it's very difficult to actually create it. You actually have to get lucky and have some kind of brand attribute or product attribute that develops sense of community and cultural kind of relevance. Yeah, I think it's almost as much about like, what do you say no to? So I think about Harley, like Harley pretty much says no to quiet machines. They have a very specific sort of look and feel and almost political bent to them where they're just, they're not trying to like please masses. Certainly it's so tightly focused, but I guess my curiosity, when I think about what is the value of a brand, it should be a component of your identity that ultimately helps you grow. So a cult brand by nature can really only grow so large depending on the niche that they're trying to reach versus great branding generally, a Nike, a McDonald's, something that's truly prolific for the masses. I don't know. How do you weigh the strengths of each and which is better? That's a good point about cult brands. I think cult brands are a little bit like, like I said, things like Ovaro or, or creative advertising that is really polarizing. So cult brands, people either love them or hate them, right? The, the, because they, they have that emotional connection. So to your point, cult brands... Uh, you can say are easy to be really constrained because if they're you know if they're a certain certain aspect of the of the brand that makes it cult like it's hard for them to expand behind um, beyond it. Sometimes it's cool if you can have a broader brand that has a cult sub brand. Another example <laughs> that's a tough one. You can say almost like Nike, Nike and Jordan, right? I mean, Jordan's not quite a cult brand, but it is almost. It, it's it's a very culturally driven. People don't really wear Jordans to play basketball anymore, so it's it's kind of retired as a performance brand. But it's a huge cultural brand, and it's a huge business. And there is because of that cultural relevance of Jordan, Nike can use that as kind of a halo effect, which is good. Yeah, I think of Yeezys as almost like the new Jordans where they have this exclusivity to them. They have this luxury quality, but you're also reaching a really niche segment in who is going to purchase a shoe at that price point. I'll give an example of cult brand probably maybe is too extreme of a name, a word, but we have a collab with Redone. Uh, are you familiar with the company Redone? Mm-mm. No, tell me more. So Redone actually takes um, used men's Levi jeans, just uh, plain jeans, and they retailer them to have a female fit, and they sell them for like three or four hundred dollars. So we've done a great collab with them. So it's Redone Hanes, and you know we've been on Adele on the on the cover of Rolling Stone. We've been on um, Tiana Taylor from Maxim, on Kim Kardashian. So it's become a super high end niche branding opportunity for us we know it's you know 200 tees is not within reach of most of the consumers 
but because it's on the celebrities that helps generate brain energy. So in a way, that's been a, been a nice way that's worked out for us. Same with Supreme. We have a partnership with Supreme that helps elevate the Haynes brand. So we were lucky to have these partnerships that can help elevate the Haynes brand in kind of a cultish way. But then the Haynes brand gets a halo effect as kind of a broader consumer brand. Like my CMO always says, target narrowly, but appeal broadly because you know, everyone buys underwear. Nine, nine out of 10 households have Haynes underwear. So we can't become a cult brand because, you know, if we focus on younger consumers, if we gain one younger consumer for, and lose two older consumers, then that's not a sustainable business model. So we've been lucky to kind of use a little bit of the cult cultural relevance on these halo brands and partnerships. Yeah, you're getting into a really interesting thing about branding, which is on one hand, there's brands that have a very intentional strategy for how they're going to resonate with a certain group of consumers to ultimately drive their growth. And then there's other brands that become popular organically and sort of democratically. I think of things like Suddenly Champion is a huge brand again, or you see Bass Pro Shop hats everywhere among a certain population of like young men. It's so interesting to figure out this balance of do you try to drive for that organic growth where you become cool again and you become relevant because of who is wearing your brand and the exclusivity of it? Or do you create an intentional strategy around resonance and the message that you're putting out to the world? What has been your approach to that challenge? You have to be careful because I say, you know, the higher you fly, the further you fall. You know, Champions had a great resurgence just because I think there's a lot of 70s, 80s brands like Champion, New Balance, IZOD, Tommy Hilfiger, that have kind of been a resurgence, kind of kind of 80s, because kind of coolness coming with them. But, uh, you know, Puma's a great example. Puma, Puma low-profile shoes were so hot back in 2000, probably 7 to 2012. And then what they did, they doubled down on the lifestyle part of their business. And then when the trend became unhot, they dropped like a seven. They didn't have performance. They didn't have performance base. So now they're kind of rebuilding performance. So you have to be careful trying to be the cool, trendy brand. So it's almost like, you know, it's almost like, was it slow and steady wins the race? You know, if you're fast and spurt, you can create some brand heat moments, right? To be careful that you're not, if you become, try to become too cool, then you, you can also cool off quite a bit. Yeah. Three of my like favorite examples of brands gaining a ton of relevance and then just losing big or not having relevance and then changing their brand to resonate. A few of them are like Abercrombie and Fitch, of course, is one of the largest where it was just this resonant brand that everyone had to have. And then it dive bombed so quickly when more inclusive body movements um, started to take over consumer decision making. Dove did the opposite. So Dove Soap, of course, went the opposite direction where they used to use sort of like naked women lathering themselves in soap to sell their product. And then they moved into this really intentional, inclusive beauty space. And they have really benefited from that change. Then you also have groups like IHOP who do, I think, sort of that sizzle thing that you talked about where IHOP did this interesting IHOP campaign where they said they were changing their name to International House of Burgers. And it was such an interesting and fun and lots of people criticized it way to raise awareness about their lunchtime and dinner menu. What do you think you can learn from these sort of like advances and declines in various brands? What are the core lessons that you carry as pivotal to keep in mind? That's a great question. I'm trying to learn from brands that, you know, that have, I call them tempo moments or hot heat moments. And my philosophy is that those are fun to do, but you risk going up and coming down. I mean, some of the brands that, we look at to emulate, to your point, are brands that 
used to maybe weren't cool, but now are cool, but they've done it kind of slow and steady. I think Old Spice is a great example. 10, 15 years ago, it was basically your uncle's duo to write. Wine Kennedy did a great job of revitalizing that, mainly through their brand campaign. I mean, their humor, their advertising. And now, you know, now they're going from men to playing with women as well. They've done a great job. Other brands like Levi's and Carhartt, right, are old established brands. Like Hanes has been around for 100 years, but now they're cool just because there's kind of a resurgence to, resurgence on, we talk about you can buy fashion, you can't buy style. You have to build style. And so by working into the whole, you know, trying to become a product or a brand that's stylish for your own style works in the long run. Again, it goes back to the, you know, the stone study wins the race. So you have to be careful on how you build that brand versus doing, you know, publicity stunts can get you hot, but then you go cold right away. So, so I think what we want to, what we're trying to do is make Hanes, or we're kind of saying that the best choice is obviously the one right in front of you, the simple choice. The nice thing right now that's going on in fashion is we call it high-low. People like to wear Hanes tee with Gucci pants or, you know, inexpensive um, polo shirt with a Louis Vuitton bag. So this kind of high-low uh, is a great phenomenon right now. Now it can help us get a little more more. I guess cultural relevance as, hey, you don't have to spend hundreds of dollars on a tee. You can buy just a plain white tee and it's still cool. You look at all the white, you look at white tees like Marlon Brando, James Dean, Fonzie, or even Tom Cruise, right? And Top Gun wearing the white tee. So I think the trick is trying to be part of fashion, but not try too hard. I mean, it's amazing how when you see stars dressed, right? They spend hours trying to figure out how to look like they didn't spend hours on putting their outfit together. So take us behind the curtain a little bit, because I'm, I'm thinking, you, you know, we started this conversation and I was thinking, how do you really harness and capitalize sort of organic booms in a brand? But it sounds like almost you're saying a little bit that's controlled, that part of your job as somebody who's managing a brand and thinking about how to drive growth is not just waiting for these moments where your brand catches fire, but really creating them by creating that sense of exclusivity. So especially with Hanes, how much is this happening organically and you all are just harnessing sort of influencer potential and power versus when are you creating it by making sure your products are showing up in movies, showing up on celebrities, showing up in a way that influences style more broadly? That's a great question on on how do you balance organic versus either paid or well thought out uh, efforts into growing your brand. That's a trick because I think trying to get organic success is almost like seed money for startup companies. You know, which startup company is going to go big? I don't know. Which which influencer, which organic social is going to go viral? I don't know. The best you can do is almost like, uh, you, the best you can do is hedge your bets, right? Try to look at as many social, organic kind of activations, look at influencers, that you can try to seed and hope one of them goes viral. Obviously, you want to make sure that it aligns with your brand strategy. And I think there also is a shift now with, you know, going with mega influencers, influencers with, you know, three, four, seven million followers to more mid-tier, ones that have 500,000, 700,000, even so I think we call ma- micro, which is more like 100,000. You can hedge your bets with, hey, I'd rather try to do something organic with, 10 followers, I mean, sorry, 10 influencers have 100,000 followers versus one influencer has a million followers. The more bets you hedge, the more chance something's going to go viral. We've been hinting at this the whole time that just the advent of digital and e-commerce is changing brand strategy 
entirely. And there's a real balance between traditional versus capitalizing on new digital challenges. How are you approaching constant shifts in digital? Yeah, the whole digital e-commerce debate is, is interesting. I always caution people that, hey, digital is important, but remember, over 80% of products purchased last year was bricks and mortars. So you can't forget about bricks and mortars. So digital first is a fine strategy, not digital only. People use digital to buy, obviously. They use digital to do a lot of research. So you definitely have to be conscious that people are using digital, consume media to get information about your product. The actual buy it, you have to follow through with a good digital experience.com, but you also have to follow through with a good bricks and mortars experience, whether it's your own stores or your retailer stores. And Dick's Sporting Goods is a great example of a company that's kind of doubled down on their stores. They have a flagship, almost like an REI experience store in New York, and they're looking at creating these almost destinations. Like actually, if you remember Shields or even Bass, Bass Valley, those places are almost like, they're almost like theme parks where you go and have experience. And that's where your brick and mortar can give you a better experience than .com. So it's a balance. It's a balance on on how much you invest on digital experience versus not forgetting about the retail experience. Because, you know, at retail, that's your last point of, of contact with your brand. And make sure you help push them over the edge on, on purchase behavior. It's so true. I'm laughing. We have a Dick's Sporting Goods in the small town of Charlottesville where I live. And I love going there. I was there with my girlfriends last weekend. We went in to get like a volleyball and we're going to head out. And we got so distracted by some of the apparel that was hanging and how nice the appearance of it was that we were like, oh, what is this brand? Like DSG. This must be new. Uh, Who makes this? Oh, look at these nice materials. And then we realized it's the Dick's Sporting Goods brand, DSG. And it's a great point that that in-store experience when you walk in can be a real differentiation. With the explosion of e-commerce, like a lot of people have forgotten about bricks and mortar, but with 80% of your purchases at bricks and mortar, you still have to make sure you have a seamless, frictionless experience at bricks and mortar. And it's a great way because you've captured the consumer there. They're in your store. How do you get them to browse to spend more time? In the same way, you can use the, you know, the KPI of time spent on your site as well as time spent in your store. you got a captive audience, so why not use that to your advantage? So one last question for you. What is the best or worst career advice you have ever received? <laughs> I would say, you know, the best career advice was I had a VP at McDonald's. He said that he felt like his responsibility to his team was to get them where they want to go. And that's so important because nurturing talent, getting people to go, you know, you have a, you have a selfish in, um, agenda to want to keep the best people, but what's best for them is their career development. So I think that's one good piece of advice. The other piece of advice was to get related to team is to give your team credit where credit's due. Uh, unfortunately, a lot, in cor- a lot of places in corporate America, it's, you know, you taking credit for what your team does. He, my boss actually got yelled at by his by the president saying, you need to take more credit for the work your team does. I think that's so bad. To be fair, if that's how you have to play the game, you know, play a game in, in, in corporate, you do that. But I think it's so unfair for your employees. So I always try to get people who work on a project to present to the CEO, to the president, CMO. They've done it because it's a good way to give them the exposure and they deserve the credit. I mean, it's not because I didn't do the work. I mean, I managed it, but they did the work. So I think those are really good piece of advice. 
That is great. Closing wisdom. Thank you so much for coming on Room for Growth today. It was awesome talking to you. We're going to have to bring you back because if nothing else, I want to understand what it was like to come up with the McFlurry and the McGriddle because those are two prolific little product brands in and of themselves. I'm a fan of both for better or worse. So Alvin, thank you so much. Can't wait to talk to you again in the future. And thanks for everything that you shared today. Thanks, Faye. It's been a pleasure spending time with you. And thanks for having me on the show. 